0: Hello, and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organization, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, I'm joined to discuss the markets and investment trust sector by Russell Napier, the financial historian and market strategist, who's also chairman of Midwind International Investment Trust, and Max King, the market commentator and former investment trust fund manager at Investec. Uh, These two independent followers of the markets and trust sector have some provocative views for you to ponder. There's only room for one half of my conversation with Russell Napier this week. You can hear the other in next week's podcast. The first of two when I will be away on holiday and my colleague Stuart Watson will be summarising the market and sector news. In the markets this week there was plenty to talk about with one of the hottest topics being the remarkable performance of NVIDIA, the US-based chipmaker, which is moving in on a trillion dollar valuation after producing some remarkable first quarter results with earnings that were well ahead of forecast, not something that often happens in a business where quarterly earnings expectations are carefully managed. More remarkable still, perhaps, is that NVIDIA came in with second quarter revenue guidance of $11 billion, a figure that is nearly $4 billion higher than the $7 billion or so that analysts consensus estimate. That's a huge beat. All of this is playing into the general excitement about the potential of AI to become the next big market story in the same way perhaps that the internet became the story that drove the market ever higher back in 1999. Excitement about the potential of artificial intelligence is certainly helping to drive up the share prices of big tech and tech-related stocks, which in turn are leading the US equity market higher this year. NVIDIA shares were up 24% this week. It's now the fourth largest company in terms of market capitalization in the S&P 500 index. And like Meta, Facebook as was, The shares are up more than 100% so far this year. Despite that, the U.S. stock market was down slightly for most of the week, but rallied strongly yesterday as hopes rose of an agreement to end the standoff between the Biden administration and Congress over the U.S. federal debt ceiling. Uh, Inflation was again a big story, with bond yields in the U.S. moving higher. After the latest inflation figures showed, inflation was still above 5% in the U.S., and as so often markedly higher still in the U.K., Here, the latest figures show that far from falling, core inflation, the measure that the Bank of England says is the one it prioritises, actually rose in April to 6.8%, which is its highest level since 1992. Retail price inflation, which includes housing and energy costs, remains higher still, though it is coming down a triad. Gilt yields moved higher in response, The two-year gilt now at 4.5% and the 10-year yield at 4.3%, while the FTSE All Share Index was down 1.8% on the week and the All World Index down 0.7%. The Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey said that the Bank of England, which has signally failed to anticipate the surge in inflation, had much to learn about the control of monetary policy. How long, one uh, wag suggested, before we get artificial intelligence to do the job instead. Turning to investment trust news, the investment trust index, which tracks the performance of around 190 trusts, which are included in the FTSE All Share Index, was down around 1% over the week in line with the UK equity market. But there was some notable divergence in performance with commercial property trusts once again amongst the big losers, declines of 6 or 7% in several cases as bond yields rose. While at the other end of the spectrum, some of that euphoria surrounding uh, tech companies in the US was reflected in good performance from Allianz Technology, Polar Capital Technology, and Scottish Mortgage, all of which have significant exposure to those uh, big names in the US market. Gresham House Energy Storage, ticker GRID, announced that it has raised 50 million from its placing, some 30 million less than the 80 million it was hoping to raise when the placing was announced last week. The shares continue to trade at the issue price of 155p. When one of the few renewable energy trusts with a premium rating falls short of its modest fundraising target, the implication appears to be that the market for issuance remains, while not completely closed, for practical purposes still something close to it. We also heard this week from Home REIT, the scandal-threatened social housing trust, which came to market in 2020 with the aim of leasing property to homeless charities and housing associations, but whose shares have been suspended since January following a series of criticisms from a short seller, uh, several of which have turned out to be correct, and a belated admission by the board that a majority of its tenants have stopped paying their rents, uh, just as the short seller had suggested, but the board initially denied. Having earlier rejected a 40p per share approach, a little ahead of its 38p suspension price from a company called Blue Star, the board said it has instead chosen AEW, the property subsidiary of the multinational property company Natixis, as its new investment advisor from a list of seven applicants. Home REIT's valuer, Knight Frank, has meanwhile served notice to terminate its contract in November as the trust valuer, and the board has yet to appoint a new one. The trust intends to sell some of its properties to clear up its balance sheet and resolve some of the issues it's been facing, uh, but clearly believes that the trust can still recover with a new investment advisor in place. AEW, where a separate uh, management team already manages a separate commercial property investment trust, one we featured a couple of weeks ago, is being incentivized by some unusual management fee proposals in an attempt to accelerate the disposal of properties and rebalance the portfolio and balance sheet. There may be some uh, issues raised by shareholders about those arrangements. There's no news, however, as to when the shares might come back from suspension, let alone at what level. So while the news that several firms were willing to pitch for the advisory role can be seen as a positive development, the uncertainty for shareholders in the trust will not be resolved for a while yet. With many investment trusts suffering from the impact of higher bond yields and the persistent widening of discounts, consolidation remains an important theme in the sector. This week, two more trusts came out with plans to put themselves out of business, albeit in different ways, and two others signalled that their future might also be in doubt. CT Property Trust, formerly part of the BMO stable, and long ago the property arm of Foreign and Colonial, said that it has agreed to recommend shareholders to accept an all-share offer to merge with a much larger listed REIT London metric. The board noted that the fund, which has a market capitalization before the deal of 145 million, is seen as subscale and, I quote, not sufficiently differentiated to attract new long-term investors, which is why it's traded at a double-digit discount for a number of years. Uh, The proposed merger terms represent a 34% premium to the average three-month pre-announcement share price, but a discount of 6% to the most recent NAV. In the absence of a cash alternative, will shareholders be happy with this? Well, we'll find out in due course. Momentum Multi Asset Valued Trust, ticker MAVT, said that it was proposing a wind-up by way of a scheme of reconstruction. Shareholders will be offered a rollover option into a diversified income fund, which is managed by the same firm, Momentum Global Investment Management. There will be a cash alternative, although the rollover will be the default option, meaning that if, as a shareholder, you forget to vote, that the rollover will be what you get. The fund into which the rollover will take place has a similar approach, but lower ongoing charges and a higher yield. The trust has suspended its discount control mechanism, but said that it was increasing its dividend for the full year by 11% to 8p per share. Meanwhile, another small investment trust, RM Infrastructure Income, ticker RMII, said that it was postponing its planned imminent continuation vote after receiving a non-binding merger proposal in April from another entity and is in the process of completing a wider strategic review, very much this year's Vogue phrase, which analysts think could culminate in one of a number of outcomes, including a merger, a managed wind-down or some other form of liquidity event. Ironically, perhaps this debt fund has not performed that badly with an NAV total return of 39% since launch in 2016, but it has a market cap of less than 100 million, as does Momentum Multi-Asset Value Trust, by the way, and has not been able to reverse its persistent discount, despite modifying its strategy in 2021 in the hope of attracting more demand and offering a yield of more than 8%. Finally, another debt trust, They seem to be dropping like flies at the moment. M&G Credit Income, ticker MGCI, is taking a different route. It's putting out a circular ahead of a general meeting to be held on 15th of June. The proposals include a requirement for the board to provide shareholders with a realisation opportunity at NAV less costs at or within 12 months before the AGM in 2028 and every fifth year after that but also a direction not to offer shareholders a liquidity opportunity in 2024. Uh, These proposals will require a special resolution majority of 75% to pass. They come after the implementation of a zero discount policy announced in April 2021. In effect, as far as I can tell, at least the board is looking to push back the timetable for its liquidity opportunity in 2024 and hoping for better times ahead. Elsewhere, we heard from Roundhill Music Royalty Fund, ticker RHM, which provided an update on its revenue performance, which has been strong and improving. But more perhaps significant is the disclosure that Joss Groose, who is the CEO of the limited partnership that uh, manages this trust, has bought 14.7 million shares for his own personal account at a cost of 10.5 million. He and his family now own 6.3% of share capital. Uh, There is a continuation vote in 2025 for this particular trust, which, like Song, Hypnosis Songs Fund, uh, is trading at a significant discount, more than 40%. But the decision by the CEO to buy more shares may be seen by some as a vote of confidence that the discount is excessive. Turning to results, the word strategy review also cropped up in the latest annual results from Caledonia, ticker CLDN, the generalist investment trust, which is still controlled by the Kayser family of shipping dynasty fame. Uh, There's no question here of this well-established and successful trust being wound down. Instead, the review centres on adjusting at the margin the balance between the three main asset classes in its portfolio, namely public equities, private equity and managed funds. The results for the year to the end of March showed Calderonia produced an NAV total return of 5.5%. While the quoted portfolio lagged the FTSE Orsha index, the fund's portfolio, particularly North America, performed strongly. And the private equity portfolio also reported positive returns during the year. Caledonia remains on a 30% discount, which is around the average for the past three years. Less successful in the year to 31st March, at least by its own demanding standards, was Capital Gearing Trust, ticker CGT, well known to listeners to this podcast which sits alongside Caledonia and the flexible investment sector, but had a different experience in the year to March. It reported its worst year in the 41 years since Peter Spiller took responsibility for the investment portfolio, which was back in 1982. The NAV total return was minus 3.6%, thereby falling short of its target to report a positive absolute return in every financial year, something which it has only once before failed to achieve. The blame for this disappointing outcome However, creditable in a year when both bonds and equities sold off sharply, the managers said, lay mainly in a failure to offload more quickly its significant holdings in commercial property trusts, which it believed, wrongly as it turned out, would prove more resilient in a higher inflationary world, and instead of which, of course, has seen significant capital declines as bond yields rose in the latter part of last year. While a recession looks likely, Peter Spiller and his colleagues say that tighter monetary policy increases the likelihood that it will be the financial system that breaks before the economy does. To quote them, we have already seen several examples in the financial sphere. LDI, pensions, FTX, Silicon Valley Bank, Credit Suisse. It seems unlikely that these will be the last shoes to drop. Even if we are wrong and a financial crisis is averted, it seems likely that a recession is on the horizon. As a result, Capital Gearing Trust is taking the opportunity, it says, to reduce its exposure to risk assets even further and take shelter in treasury bonds and index link bonds. So gloomy prospectus there. Hickel, the core infrastructure trust, was another of the larger investment trusts in the universe. It has a market cap of £3.3 billion, uh, to report its annual results for the same period, to 31st of March. It reported an NAV total return positive of 6.3% and reiterated its 8.25p dividend target for the next two years, which gives an indicative yield of 5.5%. The board is continuing with its plan to reposition its portfolio over the next 10 years as its original batch of government-backed PPP projects gradually wind down. The NAV total return on this uh, infrastructure trust has been 8.9% per annum since IPO, so the latest year is a little behind that. But the changing portfolio with a greater commitment to higher risk projects may explain why the shares have moved out to a wider discount than some of its peers. The discount currently double digits. Higher bond yields, of course, may also contribute to that. In light of the change in risk profile, which has been well flagged and well managed, one broker said this week, we wonder whether shareholders will demand a higher portfolio return than the one which the current discount rate of 7.2% implies. There are also a number of interesting interim results out this week, which you can track if you are a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle, our bonus sister offering, where we provide a regular roundup of investment trust news and data with links to all the relevant RNS announcements, as well as a summary of the main movers in share price, NAV, and discount terms. This week's uh, trust profile is of Aberdeen Property Income Trust, ticker API. And notable among those reporting interim results were two Asian centered trusts JP Morgan Asia Growth and Income, ticker JAGI, which reported a NAV total return of 11.4%, nicely ahead of its uh, 4.9% Asia X Japan benchmark, and Schrader Asia Pacific, ticker SDP, which had an NAV total return of 8.1%, similarly ahead of the index, which is the same one that JP Morgan Asian Growth and Income has. Henderson European Focus, ticker HEFT, was also notable for producing a NAV and share price total return of 22.8% and 28.3% respectively, both a fraction ahead of its benchmark's total return. Others reporting with less happy uh, data perhaps included Eddiston Property Investment Company, ticker EPIC, which recently uh, said that it is looking for a merger with another property trust. It uh, reported a like-for-like decline in valuations of 11.7% and an NAV total return of minus 12.6%. And Shire's income, ticker SHRS, which reported a NAV total return of minus 2.2%, which was behind the positive performance of its benchmark, the FTSE All Share Index. Several renewable energy trusts provided NAV or other updates, and these can be found on the Moneymakers Circle website. As I mentioned earlier, it was a pleasure to catch up this week with Russell Napier, the financial historian and market strategist, well known for uh, having founded recently a splendid institution in Edinburgh called the Library of Mistakes, which is a collection of books and other material that actually chronicles the reasons that we've had periodic financial crises over the years. And I guess the question I'm going to put you in a moment, Russell, is whether or not we're heading for something that history tells us could not be particularly benign and indeed might have been averted. But I wanted to kick off by talking about debt. And in particular, I'm going to kick off with the most immediate issue around debt, which I guess is the federal debt ceiling in the US, where uh, the administration has to uh, reach an agreement with Congress. And the Treasury Department says that the US government's going to run out of money by the 1st of June. Now, these things normally get fixed at the last minute, but what is the significance of anything of this crisis uh, rolling around again, as far as you're concerned?
1: Well, I do remember the one in the 1990s with Newt Gingrich. I remember that. And certain uh, government departments having to close. I think the national parks have to close on that occasion because of this. So as you say, there's nothing new under the sun. And if you look at the debt ceiling limit, it rises in line with the debt or slightly ahead of the debt, obviously. So we have got a series of compromises all the way to the current day. And they've often not just come down to the wire, but actually gone over the wire. So that has not meant a default on interest payments or a default on principle. meant actually closing a few government departments. And then we get there in the end. And therefore, because it's happened so many times before, the most predictable thing is it will happen again. And that is all I can say. I don't have any particular insight into this particular wrangling. I know the Gingrich wrangle was particularly bad and took us over the edge for a few days. So like everybody else, which is always dangerous, but I think another compromise comes along here as it has done so many times before, but it will be very close. The Republicans are not frightened to take this slightly over the edge to get what they want. So I'd I'd expect a few days of panic before we get there.
0: Yes. I mean, there are lots of things that the Treasury Department and the central bank and the government can do in the short term to alleviate it. But surely there are some longer term consequences if you constantly go through this cycle and you run right up to the edge of the precipice. I don't know whether you think it's of any significance. I mean, credit default swaps on U.S. debt have risen a little bit. And since uh, the last crisis, I think back in the early 2010s. US debt has been derated, gone down a notch. So do you think there are enduring consequences from uh, playing around, if you like, with the uh, administration's uh, finances in this way?
1: Well, there are enduring consequences if you don't pay the interest in principle. I mean, even for a day, I think there are enduring consequences from that if we get to that stage. I think it's still very unlikely we get to that stage. There didn't seem to be enduring consequences from closing down government departments to keep the whole thing going. It is true that Moody's have been downgrading the debt over the years. However, the yields have declined, declined at least until 2020. So even against that background of previous brinkmanship, previous downgrades, the yield fell on government bonds, on the so-called risk-free asset. Personally, I don't own any, and I wouldn't advise anybody to own any. But that's not the same thing as saying that the event is coming when we structurally undermine faith in the United States treasuries. And that, what I mean is faith is not the faith to retain the purchasing power. That's important. But the faith that they will make it payments on principal and interest. The CDS, I, I've always been surprised by the existence of a CDS. For any country that has ultimately its own central bank, it's perfectly legitimate to have a CDS for Italy, for instance, where ultimately it is not 100% clear that it has its central bank that would ultimately fund the government. That's still up for debate every now and then in in Europe, but in America it isn't up for debate. Quantitative easing is a pretty good indicator that uh, there's always somebody out there to make sure you get, get funded. So CDS for a country that can print its own money, it's always been a bit of a surprise to me. And I think we shouldn't read too much in the CDS anyway.
0: I was looking at a, a comment from Stan Druckenmiller, who's, you know used to work with George Soros and helped to launch the raid on the pound back in 1992. And he said, well, this uh, issue around the debt ceiling looks like a wave that's coming. But uh, actually, forget the wave. What's more important is the tsunami that's coming behind it, by which he meant, let's just stick with the US for the moment, the issue around debt and the exploding debt to GDP ratios in the US. Uh, And its ability to actually finance its budget is under question, if you look at the projections anyway. What is your uh, take on that? I mean, how bad a problem is it that is coming down the line, regardless of what happens on June the 1st or later?
1: Yeah, so that is absolutely the bigger legitimate problem. And it's the one that I think should dominate our thinking and dominate what we want to do in terms of asset allocation. But it is worth pointing out, it's not a US problem. It's a global developed world problem. If we look at the United States in terms of its debt to GDP ratio, and what I mean by debt to GDP is not government debt, but the government debt plus the household debt plus non-financial corporations. So the total debt of the economy, ex-financial organizations, they, the assumption being that the financial organizations must be lending to one or all of the other three. So if we look at that debt, we get the USA at 257% of GDP. Now, I have to stress that is an astronomically high number. Even in 1951, having fought a world war, America would have been close to 130%. It's now 257%. It is absolutely a reason to be very concerned about what has to happen. And in my opinion, it means they have to inflate away their debts, which they're succeeding in doing. But, and it's you know, a very important but, 257% of GDP is pretty much the average for the developed world. And some countries are way above it. So uh, Japan is 416% of GDP. France, 340% of GDP. Uh, The UK is coming down pretty quickly to 249% of GDP. The euro area, 260% of GDP. China, just short of 300% of GDP. So we will focus, rightly, on what America has to do because it's a reserve currency. And if the reserve currency owner has to do something pretty aggressive, then that has impacts for the rest of the world. But the entire developed world finds itself in at least the same situation, if if not the worst situation. So there are only, as far as I can work out, Jonathan, I've been talking about this for a long time, only five things you can do about that. So they are austerity in which the government would attempt probably to even run a fiscal surplus and pay back its debts. That is not going to happen politically. It's also dubious as to whether it works, given its impact on the economy. Your economy might actually shrink as well as your debt burden. Uh, We'll leave that up to the economists and the Keynesians. Uh, you can default on your debt. I mean, Greece defaulted on its debt some time ago. It seems to be finally getting some uh, growth dividend from that, but it, defaulting on your government debt. The Bank of England calculate that's a 7% decline in GDP that follows that. You know, it's a, If that's the so-called risk-free asset, and if someone owning the risk-free asset suddenly has a hole in their balance sheet, that's not good. So it's unlikely the politicians choose route two. Route three would be very, very high real growth. As savers, that's the one we have to hope for and pray for, if you like. Because that would be the way out of this, in which savers would do reasonably well. Uh, Because you wouldn't need particularly high inflation in that scenario, the high growth would just be, you know, your your total nominal GDP growth, even at 2% inflation, would be enough that conceivably the debt to GDP ratio would come down. Uh, And now there are problems with that one because it doesn't look like developed world labor forces are going to grow. In fact, we have the opposite problem. And as you know, there's a great productivity conundrum, which is best left for another time, given the scope of that argument. So that leaves two other ways to do it to get to our total five. Hyperinflation, highly socially dislocative, not usually chosen by politicians, because there's a fifth option, which is financial repression. And financial repression is to inflate away your debts, but in a gentlemanly fashion. So let's compare France and the United Kingdom post-World War II They both had not dissimilar debt to GDP ratios on that occasion, largely in the public sector, government debt. The French had destroyed their debt burden by 1951. They were borrowing at 6% and the economy was growing at 50% or above in nominal terms. And they achieved, in terms of their debt to GDP ratio, what the British achieved from 1945 to 1979. So there's a gentlemanly way to do it and an ungentlemanly way to do it. Now I, I think politically, the gentlemanly way is preferred. And that is a solution to the America's debt, as it is a solution to France's debt, as a solution to British debt. But that is how we do it, rather than the Republican approach. The Republican approach would effectively be austerity. That's effectively what it would be if they take us over the the line on this. And although it's possible, it's unlikely. And I think, I mean, I think the interesting thing about financial repression and that inflating away debt, the biggest actual activist for that turned out in the post World War II period for America was Richard Nixon. He's the man who put in price controls, credit controls, wage controls, capital controls. So I don't think it really matters whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. And just on that note, this is a very long answer to a very short question. Your listeners will have seen uh, Rachel Reeves in the newspaper yesterday talking about forcing British pension funds to buy certain assets. But that's exactly the same policy that Jeremy Hunt talked about six weeks ago, said he wouldn't rule it out. So in this scenario, it doesn't matter whether you're nominally left of politics or nominally right of politics, there's only five options. And I don't think any right of center party, such as the current Republican Party, would force, if you like, the right wing option, which is austerity. So I think the Hunt and Reeves, I don't know what that means for butskillism, for those of us old enough to remember butskillism, but we're getting a similar sort of policy. So I'm fairly confident it's number five, and that's the consequence from all of that debt. And that's what we have to prepare for rather than default or austerity, which would be what we get if we go over the line on the debt ceiling limitation.
0: Right. So as you say, it's unlikely the politicians are going to vote for the cold water solution, if you like. But the problem is, of course, there's a hell of a lot of debt to inflate away. The levels are extraordinarily high, as you've said. But we made quite a good job of it in the last couple of years, you'd think in one sense, because inflation has got out of control. But on the other hand, the debt burden has actually continued to rise. I mean, the US, again, being a good example with the Inflation Reduction Act and so on, the amount of debt that's going to have to be issued to fund all that is still growing, is it not? So are you saying that the politicians, as far as they're aware of the issue and the options, do they actually know what they're doing at the moment?
1: It's a great question. Let me give you the numbers, actually, just for the US. They're not dissimilar in other countries, but the peak level for total debt to GDP, so that's private and public, was at the end, the fourth quarter of 2020, it was 294% of GDP. It's now 257 so it has fallen dramatically. Now there are two moving parts in that. One, of course, is nominal GDP, and nominal GDP has been shooting up. Obviously, it's inflation plus real. But the data I'm looking at is run by the BIS, and they run it against the market price of government debt. We can discuss how legitimate that is. But if you bought a thirty-year Treasury in the summer of 2020, you've lost nearly 50 percent of your capital value. So it's actually working very well, Jonathan. So that's the first point. I know anybody who's a saver is going to get very upset when I say it's working very well. But from the perspective of a politician, it's working very well. Now, the second question is, do they know what they're doing? And I think they stumbled into this by accident. I don't think they necessarily set out in the summer of 2020 to achieve this. But they've got there. And they've got there by creating inflation. And I lay that firmly at the door of government, not central banks. That it was the government's intervention in the commercial banking system that forced the banks to lend too much, create too much money, and too much inflation. So in many ways, they've stumbled into this. Most politicians these days are reactive beasts. They're not proactive beasts. And I'm afraid now that they've discovered the magic money tree, I suspect they continue to shake it. I don't think they want inflation at this level. I think they want it lower, but they are inflating away debts. Still at an astronomically high level, but they have begun the process of doing that. And who's paying the price? Bondholders. Exactly.
0: And uh, well, after the Second World War, we did see this massive transfer well, from bondholders to others. When I started working in the financial world, you got laughed out of town if you talked about bonds, particularly government bonds. So in the short term, is there any evidence for us to think that uh, they will be successful, whoever you assign the responsibility to, in bringing inflation back down to this 2% central bank target? Or will the target go, do you think, at some point?
1: Yeah, so the target maybe doesn't officially go. I mean, the Holy Roman Empire sort of was there for a long time, even though it didn't exist. There are some things that exist for a long time on a piece of paper. The reason that we've already moved beyond this is that there are different views on inflation. I am off the camp that inflation is everywhere and at all times a monetary phenomenon, which is not shared by everybody. But if that is correct, then those who control the supply of money ultimately bear responsibility for the rate of inflation. The 2020 revolution in which our government guaranteed bank lending is the creation of more money, and that is the new normal, and the governments are now the monetary authority. Now, I can say it over and over again, but nobody will believe me, and certainly none of the financial press believe me, because they continue to put the central banks on the front page of the newspaper. That nominal interest rate, that short-term nominal interest rate clearly has an effect on real economic activity. I'm not doubting it. But if at the other side of that you have a government which is desperately getting the banks to lend, then you have something else going on. So now to the short term. The short term is that the banks have stopped lending, or they seem to have stopped lending, that money supply growth will be slowing and that inflation will be coming down. But the big but is it will not continue, that there will be intervention to ensure that these banks start lending again, as they did in 2020. Money is created. And over the long term, inflation will remain elevated my definition of elevated is four to six percent that's the sort of level you probably need to solve this debt problem. So structurally the mechanism to create money and inflation is there in the short run we probably are not quite creating enough of it just at the minute and inflation will continue to trend lower but that doesn't make you a buyer of government bonds because structurally the system has changed the power to create money has moved from the central bank to the government we just haven't realized it yet you know it's like that final scene in The Wizard of Oz. When you pull the curtain, there's just a little man there with an organ. It's you know That's what happens. They never abandon the tune. We just realize that they don't have the tools to implement the target.
0: So just on that point, whether or not the central banks are formally independent, essentially doesn't really matter, in a sense, is, is what you're saying.
1: Yeah. I mean, we have a period uh, from 1942 to 1951 in the United States of America where the government effectively controls the yield curve and bank credit growth, and we all accepted that the central bank was redundant, that there was really nothing for it to do except implement government policy. That's the world that we're looking at, going back to that. Now, the central bank can write lots of learned papers about 2% inflation, but ultimately, they don't pull the levers. That's the new world. This, this new activism by Rachel Reeves and Jeremy Hunt, this willingness to impose holdings of certain assets upon pension funds. I mean, that should give you all you need to know, about the willingness to override independent central banking. I mean, they're prepared to basically take your savings and put them where they want them to be. It's not a great intellectual leap to say we can't actually live with independent central bankers either. Our targets are incompatible with independent central banking. What happens next? It's not that you change the target. You just strip away the power from that institution and take it back. And this is what we're seeing every day. Every day you pick up the Financial Times on page four onwards. And my suggestion to everybody is read the Financial Times from page four, not from page one. Because on page one, you'll find the commentary of the remnants of the old regime. But from page four, you'll see the emergence of the new regime, which is government, left or right, willingness to intervene, to steer finance and savings and capital to achieve the political goals that they have set themselves. And they will say these are emergency goals. I mean, we have a hot war in Europe. We have a cold war with China. We have a climate emergency. Uh, The word emergency will crop up in relation to inequality and other things. So this interventionism by the state is the new normal, and it's not, in the long run, compatible with an independent central bank.
0: Before we just quickly then move on to what the implications are for savers and investors, what is the significance of the issues we've had with uh, the regional banks in the US, and perhaps in passing the uh, Credit Suisse uh, situation? If the government's going to effectively uh, trying to channel credit creation and so on, what should we read into how these banks are being dealt with?
1: Yeah, it's really important, and it's very different from 2007, 2008, 2009, because going into that, we left this all up to the central bank. The central bank, by reducing the price of money, and then that wasn't enough. So even in 2008, they were doing all sorts of other things to try and solve this from a monetary perspective. Obviously, they ultimately failed, and then the government had to get involved. But this is so radically different. We have, in some countries, almost record low unemployment. We have a economy which is growing. And yet the government has put its entire balance sheet on the line to save these banks, because it's small-scale depositors, which are guaranteed anyway. But it's clearly large-scale depositors that are getting bailed out as well. Now, the bonds may not be getting bailed out, but the depositors are. This is something really radical at this stage in a recession. And normally what you'd expect is a recession, collapsing asset prices, banks in trouble. Maybe then the government does something. The bank But the government is in really early, and that's what we have to remember. This is the government solving this problem, not the central bank solving the problem. It's the government. Now, there's a thin buffer between the government and this problem, which is the the reserves of the FDIC. But frankly, that's such a thin sliver of hope that I think we can uh, discount it. So let me make my forecast for this forthcoming recession. It isn't a recession that's remembered for a credit crunch. It's a recession that is remembered for the socialization of the credit system. And if the Swiss can do it, If the Swiss can effectively socialise the credit system with the huge guarantees that they have given, both at the government and central bank level, then it's possible anywhere. The signal from these interventions is we can't cope with a deflationary credit crunch, so we're not going to have one. I do know that market purists would say, well, look, governments often have targets that they're unable to meet. But history has shown that if you throw the entire balance sheet of the state behind one of these things, it can work. Uh, you know, I've just written from my clients, a large quarterly, pointing out that this will undermine the balance sheet of the state. And that's where we began this conversation, isn't it? And I think Ireland is a good example. In, in uh, September 2008, the government guaranteed all the liabilities of the banking system. A sheer madness, in my opinion, but they did it. All depositors and all bondholders. I think government debt to GDP was about 30%. Within two years, it was 170 It took two years, though, before the government bond market to realise that this contingent liability, this socialisation of risk, this taking risk from the private sector to the public sector, it took two years before the markets realised that that really wouldn't be the best thing for government bond prices. That's what's going on here.
0: Yeah. Well, we have seen, as you say, you pointed out a very big price correction in the bond market. A lot of losses already, at least on paper, and indeed in practice as these bonds progress. So if your scenario is right, Basically, I'll be saying, you don't really want to own bonds for the next 30 years. Is that what we're saying, essentially?
1: They're very clearly saying that.
0: That was Russell Napier, the financial historian. And as I just said, the keeper of the Library of Mistakes in Edinburgh, a splendid institution. There'll be more from Russell next week when I go on to ask him about what savers and investors should do if they buy into the scenario that he has painted Particularly relevant for bond investors. And also I talked to him about investment trusts in general from his uh, viewpoint as the chairman of a global investment trust, Midpoint. It was a pleasure as always to catch up this week with uh, Max King, a former fund manager at InvestTech and now a uh, highly regarded commentator on the markets in various publications. So, Max, last time we spoke was back in January, at the end of January, and at the time, we noted that the equity markets got off to a good start to the year, up quite strongly in January into the middle of February. Since then, it's been a bit more mixed, I would say. we still see some gains in NASDAQ and the US, a bit further gains, but the UK hasn't done much. What's your take on how the year is panning out against what you were expecting back then?
2: Well, uh, the market surprised the gloomsters by doing well at the start of the year, then it consolidated, and now it's moving ahead again. Wall Street is making new highs for the year. Uh, the UK is floundering, not surprisingly. Europe's doing quite well. The real star is Japan, which I think is up nearly 20%, although the currency seems to be holding it back. And The disappointment about Japan is that although it's doing really well, we don't seem to be making any money in the investment trusts, which is annoying. What is doing really well this year is growth stocks, technology and biotechnology and what Ed Yardini calls the magnificent eight at the top of the US stock market are just really soaring away. And, and that's both amusing because, again, it annoys the gloomsters, but it also explains why the UK's as a sort of non-growth market is doing so poorly. But um, if you invest in the technology trust and the biotech trust, you are doing extremely well. And that, of course, isn't necessarily
0: playing into the normal narrative, which is those things do well when interest rates are falling and so on. Bond yields are actually, you know, still basically going sideways at the moment. And they're not coming down well, they're, they're anyway. Not, as many people I
2: checked this. Is, it's not quite right. US bond yields have actually come down since last autumn, and it's only the UK which is going up. And, you know, all that sort of talk about how sensible, cautious Hunt was going to get things right has turned out to be predictably absolute nonsense. But um, it's interesting to note that another great comment of Ed you he not only says the markets are climbing a wall of worry, but he talks about the last year as a pandemic of pessimism. And um, all the worst fears of the pessimists outside the UK seem to be lifting. And so that means the markets only got one way to go. Uh, it seems that valuations in the US aren't cheap, but the first quarter earnings numbers were very good. And we can expect further earnings advances in the rest of the year. And as I said, Japan and Europe is doing just fine. Bond yields outside the UK aren't going higher. And um, so the uh, inflation is coming down. And so the outlook is pretty good. So I'm not surprised the market is doing well at the moment. Markets are doing well outside the UK and they'll go on doing well.
0: Well, I'm not sure exactly right about the bond yields, but it depends what day you take as a starting point, I guess. But they're still fairly
2: high anyway. They're not come down as far as some people were thinking anyway. uh, I think you can say in the US that the bond yields, they're still quite high. But because inflation is coming down, inflation is already below 5%, you can start to say, well, bonds aren't poor value in the US. Inflation is going to come down, people think, to below 3% this year, which makes bond yields sort of um, okay value. In the UK, where bond yields are still significantly negative, you've got to say, you know, steer well clear. Indeed. Well, I hesitate to ask you
0: about the latest pronouncements from the Bank of England, where uh, your friend, the governor, said that uh, Mm. the bank had something to learn about inflation and the way to respond to it, having signally failed to do so
2: uh, 18 months ago when they could perhaps and probably should have been doing so. Well, the the only pronouncement I'm waiting for from the Bank of England is the resignation of Andrew Bailey and Hugh Pill. It seems to me that their record has been so appalling that they should be resigning.
0: Right. So you think the combination of a governor who shouldn't be there and a chancellor who's not doing the right things is not positive for the UK. Perhaps you could just remind us of the things that you think they're doing wrong. I mean, quite apart from, well, one, which is specifically relevant to our interest, which is investment trusts, is putting a windfall tax on the Renewable Energy Trust. Do you think that's a mistake?
2: Yes, I think, Hunter, a number of things probably quite knowingly, which would not only be bad for the economy, but also would negatively impact government revenue. So he seems to be trying to make the deficit wider, not narrower. I mean, obviously, the personal tax numbers apply to that, but the VAT on tourist purchases, the taxes on renewable energy, the windfall taxes, the restrictions on pharmaceutical companies, I mean, it seems to be quite deliberately trying to damage the UK economy as well as damage the public finances. As for the Bank of England, it's not just that they got it wrong last year, but they're putting up rates too slowly. You know, Now that people are saying, well, we need to have 5.5% interest rates by the end of the year. No, we don't. We need to have them by the end of next week to show that the Bank of England is getting serious about inflation. So you're not keen on the UK
0: as a market. It's a low-growth market, as you say, but it is obviously very cheap. But you wrote an interesting article the other day saying that uh, the UK equity market share of the world market capitalization has fallen substantially over the last 25 years in which we've been looking at the markets. And
2: uh, you don't see that reviving anytime soon? No, I don't think so. I think it's going lower. One of the interesting aspects I thought from um, the last presentation of Nick Train at Finsby Growth Trust is he was pointing out in a portfolio which is largely UK listed, how the companies which were doing well were the ones which really had overseas shareholdings or American shareholdings like the Gates Foundation. And so all these big successful companies like Rex and the Diageo aren't dependent on UK shareholders anymore. They're dependent on US shareholders and they're also dependent on Nick Train and his colleagues. I mean, one reason for that, as we know, is that pension funds don't own much in the UK anymore.
0: Their share of UK equities has fallen dramatically. That's partly for regulatory reasons, but also, I guess, a bit of trend following. And also, perhaps they they share your view about the UK.
2: Yes. Well, um, I think it started off as regulation. And because of regulation, they became sellers. And because they were sellers, that kept the prices down, so it performed poorly. So they didn't want to own it. It was a vicious circle. And I don't think there's any will in um, political circles to reverse that. I mean, what the politicians really want is to get their hands on the pension fund money so they can spend it on their pet vanity projects, like HS3 perhaps or HS4. They're not really interested in helping pensioners get better returns from their investments or helping the UK stock market. That's really not on their agenda, and that's why I think that the UK will go on declining. And you might say, well, won't the UK investors invest in the UK market? Well. Argentines don't invest in the Argentine stock market. So why should UK investors invest in the UK stock market? There is a comparison there. But there's also
0: uh, some evidence of uh, we've seen some takeovers of UK companies, which because they are lowly valued. So presumably some overseas corporates, at least, or private equity, perhaps less certainly
2: see value there. I agree. That's the best game in town. Find companies which are liable for takeovers or radical improvements And that's why I like the two uh, Harwood funds, Rockwood and Odyssean, because they're really active value funds. And so even in a sort of declining market, they can be scavengers and make good money for their investors. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, let's look at the investment trust sector
0: overall, then. The discount, on average, remains very wide. We haven't seen much movement in that. Uh, It's got slightly worse over the course of the year. And obviously, a lot of that is down to the alternatives uh,
2: moving from premiums to discounts. Uh, I also think there's a fear that the politicians will attack investment trusts and their tax privileges. I think there's a, that fear is lurking in the background. So it's not just about the alternatives. So that's not necessarily just a, a change in government. That's a government of either hue, you're saying? Well, they're more or less the same, aren't they? You can hardly tell the difference. It's you know, so a magnolia white versus lily white. You know, so, you know. <laughs> that wasn't the case a little while ago, but it is
0: certainly moving that way now. We can be sure about that. I think it's quite interesting to talk about infrastructure versus renewables. Mm. You've mentioned renewables already, and I think it's fair to say you're not overly keen on those, other than they generate decent income, of course. But you think that uh, the ones are more attractive those that actually aren't investing in the UK, but have some overseas exposure. Did I get that right?
2: Yes, that's right. I think the trouble with renewables is actually that the market is getting mature. And at the same time, the government is desperate to shovel money into the sector. And we're already on sunny or windy days. Maxing out on renewable energy, so extra capacity is only going to thump prices. And when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, you know, however many you've got, they still don't produce any electricity. So when conditions are favourable, prices will go down. When conditions aren't favourable, prices will be irrelevant. And so I think the returns are heading for a fall unless the discipline of the market means that new capacity doesn't come on stream. And the market is trying to apply that discipline. By pushing these renewable energy companies onto discounts to NAV. But the worry is that the government starts welling in and throwing money at the sector, which would be completely stupid. And therefore, it's quite likely.
0: Well, we have seen one or two of them already taking some steps to try and uh, deal with the fact they're now trading at a
2: discount and can't raise money quite so easily, or indeed at all at the moment. Well, there uh, are opportunities overseas, and that's where the renewable energy companies should be looking. But I do actually think that there's good opportunities in the wider infrastructure sector. I think the infrastructure companies over the years, well, they started off taking very little revenue risk. And I think they've got better at taking revenue risk and finding projects where there is a certain amount of revenue risk, but they are able to manage it. So um, I think they've done a good job. I mean, 3I Infrastructure has obviously been the market leader, but uh, all the other companies, BBGI is a relatively international fund, is also a good fund. But, you know, I'm certainly not knocking um, Hickel or the others as well.
0: And then one or two cases, they have moved out to quite big discounts, some double-digit discounts in the case of a couple of
2: them, including Hickel, for example. Is that an opportunity, do you think? I think so, because people forget that um, although their yields are not as competitive with government bond yields as they were a year or two ago, they are not inflation indexed, but inflation-connected. So those yields and dividends will go up over time, which, of course, government bond yields won't. So inflation goes up, government bond yields struggle. But if inflation goes up, then these infrastructure companies will pay higher dividends. Do you think that the IPO market is going to stay closed for quite a while? Well, it's interesting that last year was the first year since 1978 without a single investment fund IPO. And I saw that small IPO emerging markets. What was it? I should remember because that's the one we want to buy. And that the old rule in investment is buy IPOs when they're few and far between and avoid them when they're plentiful. So that one being the first one for over a year has got to be a real stormer over the next few years, in my opinion.
0: That was the Ashoka Emerging Markets
2: Trust. That's it. it. Yeah. I mean, I know nothing about that fund or Ashoka, but I do know that um, funds which, uh, which launch in very difficult times are almost always a good investment.
0: Obviously, they raised about, I don't know what it was, 30 million or something. So they've got to go quite a long way and they're going to run into this other problem, which is if you're too small for the buyers to. uh, I can uh, tell
2: you that in the mid-1990s, we raised 14 million for the Finsbury Pharmaceutical Trust and it's now over 2 billion. So, you know what, you start perform well and you can um, perform and you'll be fine.
0: OK, so, I mean, one of the things I noticed is that you don't seem to have much interest in uh, commercial property trusts. And that's been a good thing, obviously, because they have performed very poorly recently. We have heard from a commercial property trust this week, that's a CT property trust, that it's uh, doing a merger with a much larger open-ended property vehicle. What's your thoughts about the commercial
2: property sector? Well, I think there is sort of good value in some of the REITs, which are quasi-infrastructure, like PHP and Assura. I think there are some good opportunities there. I think, actually, the principal opportunities are in perhaps whether they're REITs or not REITs. So the company is trading on massive discounts where actually the markets are looking quite good. And I've just been looking at uh, Derwent London, you know, which is a refurbishment specialist, although it does a lot of build. And they're trading at 40% discount to NAV, and their numbers look good. Great Portland, similarly, um, Capital Counties, Shaftesbury, they've just merged. They're looking good. I think the London-centric companies are looking pretty attractive at the moment. So, yes, I think this is a good area to invest in, that the market is fearing much worse than is likely. Land securities, you know, now old faithful. It is true that in the City of London, vacancy rates are quite high, but in the West End, they're very low, which is why Derwent London and Great Portland are looking pretty attractive. And I suspect that the pipeline of new development is going to diminish. These companies have been pretty cautious, so I think it's a very good area to invest. Of course, the best way to invest for an investment trust investor is probably through TR Property, because Marcus Fairmudge is pretty good. You know, why try and choose which fund do you want to invest in when you can leave it to him? Actually, what I do is uh, I have most of my money uh, with him, but I'm, I can't resist the occasional property play.
0: We talked to him the other day. He's uh, pretty convinced that it's pretty close to the bottom where his share price is anyway. Yeah. He would say that, of course, but he would have some arguments to back that up. He would say that, but I think he's right. I can't let this week go without mentioning the social housing sector, where we've seen that Home REIT have found somebody to advise them to take over managing that disaster, but the shares remained suspended. They rejected an offer at 40p, which is above the uh, suspension price, and they've chosen AEW to come in as an investment advisor. Meanwhile, of course, we saw Civitas social housing effectively being taken out at the premium to where it was, but well below its uh, issue price. I think you have quite strong views, thinking back to what we said last time, that the uh, This is not really a sector that the private sector should be dabbling in.
2: I think the private sector did lend a hand in this sector, and I think that that business model is dead. I am reminded a few years ago when Civitas came to the market, along with somebody else whose name I can't remember, I did do a write-up, and it was rather negative. And I used an expert industry housing association contact who explained to me that the housing associations that were well-run and got their finances in good order could borrow very cheaply from a government-backed loan fund. So those that were going to the private sector and companies like Civitas for their finance were the ones which were not particularly well run and got their finances into a bit of a mess and were not eligible for uh, cheap loans. And I think that's been the basic problem, is that actually these companies are sort of there to help the associations in distress, not the ones which are doing well. Yeah. And that's not really a function
0: that the investment trust should be involved in. So do you think there was a fault with the brokers who brought them to market? They're always going to try and sell something, I guess, if they can. But um, there was a failure somewhere along the line
2: in the, in this area, whether or not? I don't think life has been made easy for these companies since their stock selection has not been ter- terribly good. I don't think the funds necessarily realised the pitfalls of the sector. They hadn't got enough sort of sector experts involved and needed the Harwood style approach rather than the everything is fine approach. Well, they certainly managed to raise a lot of money in quite a short period of time. That, I guess,
0: suggested that people perhaps hadn't done their homework as well as they might have done. We heard this week some results from Caledonia, which is in the Flexible Investment Trust, uh, an old kind of family office, effectively, which has still got a significant shareholding by the Kaiser family, the shipping dynasty. But it's a very good performer over the longer term. Do you still like that one? Why does that trade at such a big discount, do you think, uh, at the moment?
2: The answer was it was always put into shadow by RIT. And the magic of the Rothschild name always attracted the private investors. And, uh, you know, Caledonia, what's that all about? And the Kaiser families were not known. And people with long memories may have had sort of remembered this sort of fiasco of British and Commonwealth. You remember that one? Um, so it's been sort of forgotten about, but its performance has been good it's moved steadily into the private equity arena, particularly in areas like um, wealth management, which it knows a lot about. I know somebody on the board who is an extremely shrewd operator in private equity. So they've clearly got people on board who really know what they're doing. And they don't shout from the rooftops. And uh, like all good privately controlled businesses, they're not too worried about the discounts. They're just worried about getting good returns and the discount will look after itself in the longer term. So yes, I, I think Caledonia is a good investment, and I'm I'm sceptical about RIT, where I think that you know, the story has definitely faded and I can't see where the returns are coming from in the future. Yeah, you mentioned that last time.
0: And so far, at least, there doesn't seem to be much sign of improvement or the market taking to it more kindly than it did before. It's OK. It's just not. I think Caledonia's better. In terms of this move to private, you still like Scottish mortgage, I think, even though that's obviously had a torrid time. What else do you think about private equity generally? I mean, there's been a lot of money flooding into that, probably too much.
2: But the better animals will still perform, in your view? Well, it was too early in Scottish mortgage. It had another leg down, though it does appear to be picking up. And with the return of growth investing, it should be doing well. And also, the private equity funds are starting to pick up, particularly the growth-orientated ones like HGT. So I do think private equity is looking attractive. Three is storming ahead. So it does seem as though the private equity is on the up, and that remains a good place to invest. And there are plenty of good funds producing good results, which are trading on attractive discounts. The one I am sort of tempted by, actually, even though it's UK focused, is Literacy Capital because it's been the best performer, and it's probably just about the most expensive in the sector. And sometimes, when the markets overall is cheap, the best thing to do is buy the best funds while you can even though they're not particularly cheap, because you certainly can't afford to buy them when the market is more positive. Cheap is always cheap, but the quality is only cheap every now and then. So I think my pick of the sector now would probably be, alongside HGT, would be literacy capital. Yeah, you made a very good point there. So what else can we talk about, Max, this week? There's one merger which I think deserves a really honourable mention, and that is the merger of Nippon Active Value with Aberdeen Japan. I looked at it a few years ago and thought, well, Aberdeen Japan had a pretty dull record. It was too small. And the sensible thing for it was to merge with another company and create some scale. And Karen Braid, their chairman, listened with interest. and um, And it's taken a while, but she's actually steered Aberdeen Japan into a merger, which will create a decent sized Japanese specialist. And I think she deserves a lot of credit for that. Do you think an activist approach to Japan is a sensible approach? I mean, it seems to be beginning to
0: work. Uh, corporate governance is improving there, and a number of Japanese companies are prepared to make changes to their policies. So you think that's a better way to invest than directly into a kind of all Tokyo stock market uh, investment trust?
2: Well, I think a, a bit of both works. Uh, Joe Baumfreund has been using the semi-activist approach at AVI Global and also with AVI Japan I think his approach is certainly the right. It's not to be aggressive, just try and be helpful. And I think aggressive activism doesn't work in Japan, and I'm not really sure it really works anywhere, but in you know, a combination of a carrot and a stick and cajoling people does work, and that's what I think will work in Japan. I think you're sort of pushing on a semi-open door, but don't shove too hard Is would be my advice to, to these people, and I'm sure that's what they're doing already. Well, that's certainly what uh, Nippon Active Value have been doing.
0: Now, finally, I've got to ask you about. You seem to become quite keen on Twitter. The idea of Twitter in the hands of Elon Musk—is it something you actually put some money into, or you just think that maybe this is something that can be turned around? He's lost about twenty billion so far, but he's got some change. Do you think he's got a decent chance of succeeding there?
2: Well, I can't put money into it, so no, I haven't put any money into it, and I probably wouldn't because I didn't like buying individual stocks. And yes, undoubtedly, Elon Musk was pushed into buying it at the wrong price. I don't think there's any doubt about that, but. I always thought that it was a great opportunity. He is a genius and he will turn it round. I mean, Twitter still has a sort of instant monopoly in its area. And if it was sensibly run, it would be a huge business. I think the previous managers managed to be massively overstaffed, get themselves into real fix and annoy all their advertisers. So I'm prepared to bet that he will make money out of this, even though he paid the wrong price initially.
1: Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.